Hebrews chapter 2, Paul is connecting so many dots. Um, there are so many things woven into the book of Hebrews. It is, in one sense, the book of Romans to the Jews, but its theology is just as beneficial to us as Romans is to the Jews. Another thing is, and Paul will do it in this chapter, is he, he is the teacher of progressive dispensationalism. None of you need to know those words, but what that means is that starting in creation on day one, everything comes forward. Unfortunately, sin is brought forward from the garden. The promise that is brought forward from the patriarchs the, the Jews and the church want to leave behind because that was for Abraham and the patriarchs, but no, Paul will explain. That stays, that remains. Then the law comes and people are confused. Now it's the law. No, it's the promise. The law is to lead you to the promise. And then Christ comes, fulfills the law, takes away the penalty of sin from everyone who will believe, and the promise is moving forward. The law still has its purpose. It still, as Paul will call today in Galatians 3, is the guardian to Christ. What leads us to Christ. You're guilty. Here's how you're guilty. Here's how often you're guilty. You need Christ. So that brings us clearer in a vision of the promise. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, um, our desire is to know you and to know your Son better through this message and what you have done. And that's what your Son prayed in John 17, 3, that if we can do that, eternal life will become clear to us. Help us to do that today in Jesus' name. Amen. So we begin in Hebrews chapter 2, and I already see I put the, I've got a typo in the top of the title. So it is Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. We're continuing our study. Paul has preached chapter 1 entirely from the Psalms. He will continue to use the Psalms and Isaiah as we go through chapter 2. Verse 1, We must pay careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. If you take your eyes back to the opening verses in chapter 1, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom we also made the universe. So because of that, Paul has taken us into chapter 2. He spoke to us through the prophets. Now he's spoken to us through his Son the Supreme One, the heir of all things, and he's telling us a very practical truth. If I listen to God's word every day of the year, and one day in that year I don't listen, I begin to drift away. That's just the nature of the human being. So you have some verses there in your notes. Proverbs 4 23 says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from within this. One of the verses that you have there is 1 Thessalonians 5.23 where Paul is praying that God will sanctify you through and through, that he will change you, train you, and make you like Christ. And then he says, so that your whole spirit, soul, and body will be sanctified. So the order in which we are changed is my spirit hears from God's spirit, the word of God. And as long as that connection, if you thought of it like an electric current, as long as my spirit is connected to God's spirit, then I think about God's word. And as long as I think about God's word, I do what God says. So Paul is saying here in verse 1 of Hebrews 2, if the connection to the Spirit is temporarily broken, everything falls apart. What God wants to do is move our feet and our hands in the same direction that Christ is moving, in the same course that he has set. But our feet and our hands are going to do what our mind is thinking. And our mind is going to think either casual thoughts, Jim thoughts or godly thoughts. 
And the only way I think godly thoughts is if I'm connected right then, my spirit to his spirit. As soon as I hang up that phone, I begin to drift. So Proverbs 19.27 says that if you stop listening to instruction, my son, you will stray from the truth. If what is going in my ear is God's word, then my mind is meditating on the word of God. And when that is happening, I'm being renewed. And the renewal is my hands and my feet moving for his purpose. So we don't think it's that big of a deal. I didn't. I meant to read God's word today. I meant to think about the things of God's word, but I didn't. Look back at that day and, and look at, take a picture of it. Because it, when the connection is broken, the only weapon, the only tool that the Holy Spirit has is the word of God. And when my spirit disconnects from the Holy Spirit, the word of God is silent. Now my mind wanders. Now my feet wander. So Paul is saying, may your whole spirit, soul, and body, my spirit is forever saved, born again, in heaven, in Christ. But it's my choice to listen to him. My soul is the very being of who I am. When a sperm meets an egg, there is a soul. It's not just the life of a human being that is at stake. It is the life of a soul that is at stake in the mother's womb. So he knit us together in our mother's womb, and immediately, as soon as they tap together, the sperm and the egg, there is a soul, a person. That's spirit, soul, and Paul is saying, if he has this, he has you. And if he has you, you will do what he says. And if you do what he says, he says, I and my Father will live with you and move with you, go in and out with you, and fellowship with you. So um, you think of some of the Psalms, Psalms 119 and verse 9. How can I keep my way pure? By living according to his word. If I'm hearing his word, I'm thinking on his word, I'm living pure. Um, I have hidden your word in my heart. My heart is my soul. If I'm hiding it there, I'm doing what he wants. So then it becomes a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. Without the connection, my spirit to his spirit, none of that happens. When it reaches my mind and I meditate on what he says and what he wants me to do, then my feet move and God's word literally becomes a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. So David at the end of Psalms 19 says, may these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Verse 2 for since the message spoken through the angels was binding and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we ex escape if we ignore so great a salvation? This salvation, which was at first announced by the Lord, was confirmed by those who heard him. So Paul is talking about Jesus coming on the scene, the law was given to Moses by angels. And he's saying if the law was binding, if you um, dishonored your parents under the law given to Moses, you were to be put to death. So Paul is saying here, if if what was given by angels to Moses was binding so that every violation of that law had its just punishment, then what would it be like under grace to reject Christ? Or as he's saying here, this great salvation. What will, it, what will the weight and the, the outcome of that be if under the law given by angels people were put to death? So you have some references there. Let's go to John chapter 1. As John 
Paul says here that when Christ came, that he pronounced it. He pronounced the kingdom. He pronounced salvation. In the book of Matthew, in his ministry begins, the first words out of Jesus' mouth is, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's what Paul is saying. He proclaimed it first. When Jesus came, he spoke it. And then he says, those who heard him brought it forward. So he's speaking about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. And John is explaining that in depth in John chapter 1. Um, if we walked through John, we would see that he is in the world. And though the world was made through him, it did not recognize him. And he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. But to those who received him, he gave the right to be children of God. Not children of human descent or a husband's will, but born of God. And then he says, that word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And then a couple of verses later in John, verse 16, he says, out of his fullness we have received grace in, in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So John is telling us theologically that this law, which was given through angels by God to Moses to lead us to Christ, but Jesus comes and now grace and truth come through him. So Paul begins Hebrews 1, 1, that before this he spoke through his prophets at many times in various ways, but now he's speaking to us by his Son. John begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through him all things were made, without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life is the light of all mankind. That's what the Son brought to earth. Paul is saying, listen to him and keep listening to him and keep listening to him or you'll drift. You'll start to live for yourself because it takes no initiative to do that. Turn to Acts chapter 7 as Stephen is preaching about this law which Paul says is given through the angels. Acts chapter 7, and late in his message, he's been preaching a, a sermon that takes them from the beginning all the way to the crucifixion and the resurrection. And he's about to be stoned to death for preaching this message, which will advance the gospel to the world. It is the event that sends the gospel out to the world. So shortly before Paul comes on the scene, Stephen is stoned. So we pick it up in Acts chapter 7, verse 52. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, capital R, capital O, Jesus. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through angels but did not obey it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. This is Jesus talking in John chapter 7 that those who believe will receive sight and those who hear it that think they see will become blind. This is one of those moments that he is prophesying in John chapter 9. So, verse 55, when Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, and that's the only option. A human being can only be full of the Holy Spirit or have none of the Holy Spirit. So, the Holy Spirit, when a person makes Christ their Lord, indwells them forever. But that connection to God is either 100% or it's 0%. So the fruit from the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. If you say, I do all those but one, then you're actually doing none of them. When you're full of the Holy Spirit, 
your spirit feeds your mind and your mind moves your, your feet your mind moves your body moves your feet so stephen is in full connection with god he maybe not even realizes until right here that they're going to kill him now they're furious it says that while he's speaking they're yelling at the top of their voices and covering their ears so they can't hear what he's saying because they know it's true and Stephen can only see Jesus. So verse 55, But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul, the Jewish name for the Apostle Paul. Turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. where in the first doctrinal letter to the church is the book of Galatians. And book of Galatians has much, you'll find much of Galatians in the book of Hebrews, much of the book of Hebrews in the book of Galatians. But he's explaining the fulfillment of the law here given by angels and the difference between that and Christ. Verse 19 of Galatians 3. Why then was it given at all? It was added because of transgression until the seed, capital S, Jesus Christ, to whom the promise referred had come. The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart light, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But scripture, was locked, scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. So Paul is doing two things. This law given by angels. Why was it given, Paul? Because of transgression, so that it would point us to Jesus Christ. Now that Christ is here, the seed is here, we can operate by grace in the promise. The promise is Genesis 12, 1 through 3. You could say that the promise literally goes back to Genesis chapter 3. But the point is, the promise was given from the beginning. The law doesn't change the promise. The law directs us to the promise. So in Genesis 15, Abraham confesses Jesus as Adonai, sovereign one. Paul says you must confess him as Lord. Abraham does. A couple verses later, it says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. So Paul says in the promise, you must confess him as Lord, sovereign, master, ruler, and you must believe in his heart, your heart that God raised him from the dead. The last verse is in John chapter 8. Jesus says that Abraham understood the coming of Christ, the death, burial, and the resurrection. He explained that to Abraham. So Abraham understood that a Redeemer was coming, a Messiah was coming, and he made a promise that Abraham believed, and the promise in Genesis 15, as Abraham and Jesus are outside looking at the stars, he says, that's your descendant. What Abraham could have understood himself is that he would, Genesis 12, 3, be a blessing to all nations. What Paul explains to us is that when Abraham was looking at the stars, as Christ followers, we were in the stars. 
So he will, Paul will ask the question in Romans 4, was it just for the descendants of Abraham or is it for us? He says it's for us. We who believe in Jesus Christ become descendants of Abraham's. Therefore, we are put into the promise of God. What he's explaining in Hebrews is that he spoke to us by, by prophets and he gave us a law that was given through angels, but now the Son himself has come. And he has given us grace and truth, which doesn't nullify the law, it fulfills the law, but it's so superior to the law that Paul is trying to get us to grasp it. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. As we go back to Hebrews, we're going to read one verse there pertaining to verses 2 and 3. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 25. We have the question in Hebrews 2, 2 and 3, if they were punished for disobeying the law, how big of a deal is it to disobey the gospel? Verse 25, Hebrews 12, See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? In other words, those who were warned by Moses were punished. In the wilderness, essentially, three people survived. And he says, if that was the case with a law given through angels, what will it be to deny Christ in salvation, to not make him your Lord? He will tell us later in Hebrews that you are trampling the Son of Man under your feet when you hear it and you don't obey it. Back to chapter 2, verse 4. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul says that the true marks of an apostle are miracles, signs, and wonders. So he is telling us here, the same Paul is saying here that that grace and truth have come is testified to by signs, wonders, and miracles. So the first generation of apostles, there was so much spiritual anointing on Paul that Paul would drop his handkerchief and someone would pick it up and run to a sick person and touch him with his handkerchief and they would be healed. That wasn't to escalate Paul, that was to give evidence that God had come to earth to indwell human beings. So he says two things here, that miracles, signs, and wonders prove that the gospel is true. And then he tells us also in verse 4 that the Holy Spirit distributed gifts to demonstrate the same thing. The manifestation of the Holy Spirit is the proof of truth today. Now here's the downside of that. The Holy Spirit is only visible in obedience. So we live in a pretty confused country about Christ and about salvation and about making him Lord and about the Holy Spirit. So we have a lot of churches that are trying to create spiritual atmosphere. There's nothing about spiritual atmosphere in the Bible. Um, that when the Spirit moves, it moved in Stephen. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up and it said that when he was looking up, his face was glowing. The Holy Spirit manifested itself through Stephen, demonstrating to this crowd while they're throwing stones at him that it's God working through Stephen, that the gospel is true. So if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where we read about the distribution, which Paul is talking about in Hebrews 2.4, of spiritual gifts. And we just read the opening verses there. There are many awesome things about the Holy Spirit that we don't have time to talk about, but we end up assigning things to him that aren't true. 
But here's what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 12. Now about the gifts of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. Therefore, I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is cursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. That means it can't be true. Lord Jesus, if he's not actually your Lord. Jesus will say things like, why do you call me Lord and you don't do what I say? So Paul is saying it is the Spirit himself that allows people who are indwelt by him to say Jesus is Lord. Verse 4, there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. And that Lord there is, again, curious. There's one master, there's one spirit. What is the spirit's job? To make us glorify the master. Verse 6, there are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in every one, it is the same God at work. Now to each one, the manifestation of the spirit is given for the common good. So Paul explains there in verse 7, spiritual gifts are for in the church, one another, for the common good. So in the church, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit shows himself when a person is giving their life connected to Christ, listening to God's word, doing what he says. Paul says that when we do this, he says, don't conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. We can know God's plan for this church when he manifests himself through our gifts. It is not having a gift that manifests it, it is obedience that manifests it. So if you ask 99 out of 100 Christians or professing believers, what's your spiritual gift? I don't know. It's not revealed in a message from heaven. Paul says to Timothy in, in first, 2 Timothy 1.6, Timothy, fan into flame the gift of God that is in you. He's talking about Timothy being a gift. And here in 1 Corinthians 12, he's talking about spiritual gifts that would have been given to Timothy. So the Holy Spirit does want to manifest a visual to the world, but it's not being slain in the Spirit. It's not speaking in tongues, Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 14. It's not chaos. It's simple obedience. We read in chapter 12, verse 25, running the race, and Sailor read about this, with perseverance, showing up, being obedient, the, the simple, tactical things that we do out of obedience to Christ reveal the Holy Spirit, and it proves that he is here. That is the only way he will show himself. Turn to Acts chapter 2. In the apostolic age, when the Holy Spirit came to earth, he manifested himself to the crowd in speaking in tongues. In the Bible, speaking in tongues that is promoted, that is demonstrated, is always outside the church. Paul says inside the church, he says that speaking in tongues is for the unbeliever and not for the believer. He says speaking in tongues doesn't build up the church. Speaking in tongues in the Bible is always two things, and we'll see a couple of examples. It is always a new people group hearing the gospel and accepting it. So the, the biggest demonstration is in Acts chapter 2 when you have Jews from all over the world speaking dozens of different languages. And Peter gets up post-resurrection proclaiming Jesus and repenting and turning to him in verse 38. 
and everyone in every language hears him in their language. And they realize that's God. So they see a manifestation of flaming tongues. They see a manifestation of speaking in tongues and they are cut to the heart and they repent. We're going to look here at verse 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together at one place. We learned a couple weeks ago. What are they doing? They're reading the book of Ruth. Verse 2. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came down to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled. So we're not going to speak or teach on speaking in tongues today, but he tells us here and he tells us in 1 Corinthians 12 that speaking in tongues is always speaking a known language that the speaker doesn't know. So if I went to Mexico and God wanted me to proclaim the gospel to a people group that was ready, we just want to know what to believe. We just want to know how to follow Christ or Cristo. What do we do? If I just suddenly spoke in Spanish, everyone there would understand. I would know what I'm saying, but I'm speaking a language I don't know. That's always what speaking in tongues is defined as in the Bible. Now let's look at a, a different demonstration, but similar in chapter 10 of Acts, verse 42, where Peter, for the first time in his life, is preaching to Gentiles because Jesus came to him and basically made him go preach to Gentiles. So he does, and he preaches the gospel to them, so the, the variables in the book of Acts, which is the only place you find speaking in tongues, is speaking to the lost, a demonstration of the Spirit, and Jews are always present. So we start with Jews in Acts chapter 2 who are going to really struggle with Gentiles receiving grace and part of God's family. So Jews are always present as Paul brings the gospel to Ephesus. Jews are watching as they speak in tongues as Peter goes to Caesarea, which we learned today was Philip's hometown um, where Cornelius is. We pick it up as Peter is preaching in verse 42. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed to judge the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, the Jews that were brought to see this, who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of being, their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 3, Peter says that they have to repent. In Acts chapter 10, it says that he preached to them, everyone who believes in the judge of the living dead and the dead, Jesus Christ, is born again. Did they repent here? Look at verse 18 of the next chapter when Peter goes back to Jerusalem to explain what happened. When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance unto life. They were shocked that a Gentile could repent and receive Christ. They had already repented themselves in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 3. 
and in other places in Acts. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5. Paul is going to explain here as we read verses 5 through 8 what we were talking about in Sunday school. (coughs) Hebrews 2 and verse 5. It is not to angels that he subjected the world. Here's your picture of order where human beings were created below angels but raised above them. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, a son of man that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor and put everything under their feet. In putting everything under them, God left nothing that is not subject to them. Yet, at the present time, we do not see everything subject to them. So, David, the the patriarchs and those during the time of the law understood God's plan way more than we understand so that Paul can preach the book of Hebrews through David's psalms. So David, when he grasped what Paul is teaching us in Hebrews 2, which leads to us becoming the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ in verse 11, and God the Father becoming our Father, David goes back to Genesis and he starts praying to God, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens and through the praise of children and infants you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, Jesus Christ, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. David says, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you, almighty God, think about them. For you made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. All the flocks, the herds, the animals of the wild. The the birds in the sky and the fish in the sea, all that swim in the paths of the seas, probably referring to whales there. And then he says, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. God, what have you done? What have you done that everything your hands made, you put us over When you created us, Lord, Adam and Eve, he's thinking back to what we read in um, Genesis 1.26 where God says, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. David is going back to Genesis 1.26 He has spent time in conversations with Jesus and he's connecting the two as David looks to the death of the Messiah. Psalm 69. And he says, God, how can you love us that much? How can you give so much for us? Turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4 because... Paul says in Hebrews verse 8 of chapter 2, yet at the present time we do not see everything subject to them. So in God's magnificent plan, or Genesis 1, 26, through the rest of verse 31, he placed mankind as the crown, you crown them with glory and honor over everything. We're, in a sense, placed above the galaxies, above the angels, above the physical part of heaven. 
But something happens in Genesis chapter 3. Satan says, if you just eat of this tree, you'll be like God. Satan remembers back in Luke or Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, that's what was his downfall. He wasn't content being the most magnificent angel. He wanted to be like God. So as soon as even Adam bit into that fruit, that rule that was given in Genesis 1.26 is lost. Who rules creation now? Satan does at that moment and until Christ came. So we're going to read several verses, but understand what's happening here in Luke chapter 4. Satan knows that he holds the keys to the kingdom of earth and heaven and everything that's on this planet, that Adam and Eve gave it to him. He knows that Jesus is going to purchase it back. And he's trying to do everything he can to prevent that from happening. And if he does prevent it, he is rule over everything on earth. So he, it's interesting as we read chapter 4 and verse 1, the Holy Spirit, Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit. What's the Holy Spirit telling him to do? Get away from Satan? No, do everything your father told you to do, so I'm going to take you right to Satan to tell him face to face. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate, and we'll see this at the end of Hebrews chapter 2. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. He hasn't eaten for 40 days. How can I get him, Satan says. The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written. Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world, what God gave to Adam and Eve that Adam and Eve gave to Satan. And he said to him, I will give you all authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. It's just like Adam and Eve. A lot of that is true. He shows them all the kingdoms of the earth. And he says, it was given to me. True, true. And I can give it to anyone I please. Not up to you. Not up to you. It's up to me, Jesus is saying. So Jesus says in verse 7, or Satan says, if you worship me, it will be all be yours. Meaning that if he bows to Satan, Jesus himself is ensuring Satan will keep his authority. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him up to Jerusalem and had him stand in the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. He's trying to get him to commit suicide. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will, they will lift up lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. He's, he's quoting scripture against Jesus. Jesus comes back with verse 12. It is said, do not put the, the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. The next time he would come after Jesus is in the upper room and in Gethsemane. And he would try to disrupt the plan of God, but turn to John chapter 12, which Satan would have heard Jesus preach before Gethsemane. This is why Satan goes after Jesus in Gethsemane, why he is being tormented in his spirit. He's being tormented here in John chapter 12, and we pick it up in verse 27. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It is for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. 
Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it and said, it had thundered. Others said, an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment of this, on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus says to this crowd, that thundering voice is my father. He is ordaining me and announcing me in front of you. And here's what I want you to know, that when I'm on that cross, it is a victory and not a defeat. It is a reclaiming of what Satan took, number one. And number two, when I, draw, when I am on that cross, I will draw all people to myself. So salvation and the title deed of the earth in these verses in John 12 are being purchased back from the cross because Adam and Eve gave both of them away. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9. So Paul says in verse 9, after saying... Let's read verse 8 so it makes sense together. And put everything under his feet and putting everything under them. God left nothing that is not subject to them, referring to Adam and Eve. Yet at the present time, we do not see everything subject to them. That's why David is giving us Psalm 8. But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Every human being is a sinner. A hundred percent of human beings are assigned death. The wages of sin is death a hundred percent of the time. If you make Christ Jesus your Lord, you will never taste that. He already did. What it is to be torn away from God, 2 Thessalonians 1, 6 through 9, and separated from him forever, he tasted. If you follow him, you never will. What an awesome and glorious and humbling statement that is that Paul is making. Turn to Isaiah 53. I want to go back and listen to this preacher who took me through the book of Job this past week. Job is a picture of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And in Isaiah 53, there are about four stages and things that God does um, that, that are all found in the book of Job. And I never realized it from that perspective before. But in Isaiah 53, Isaiah is prophesying what Christ is going to do. We could do this from Psalm 22, which would be quite a few more verses, where he starts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's tasting death for us. And the end of that verse is he is lifted to the highest place so that from there he can have all authority and rule and reign. And we go back to the order in Sunday school, um, in Ephesians and in Colossians, we are in Christ, who is at the highest place in the heavenly realms, above all rule and authority. We are above all rule and authority in Christ. And David is contemplating that in Psalms 8, and in Psalms 2, and in Psalms 110, and in Psalms... 69 and in Psalm 72, all of these psalms are starting with the suffering servant and to the crescendo of how great a Messiah we have. So Psalms 22 starts with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Tasting death for us, torn apart from his father, but it ends with his 
inauguration as king of kings. And Isaiah 53 is the same. It's a short chapter. It's a powerful chapter. So we're going to read it. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was lowered, Paul says, Hebrews 2.9, lower than the angels, just like we were. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. This is, Job is preaching this and we don't realize this. He's not Jesus Christ. He's nothing God in any way, but he is a picture of Psalm, or Isaiah 53. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, tasting death for everyone. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth. We just read in in John chapter 12, I'm I'm in torment and my soul's overwhelmed, shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? No, this is why I came. We get into Hebrews later, it will say, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He knew Isaiah 53, 1 through 12, before he went to the cross. Verse 8, by oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned the grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he did not, had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and it begins to build and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand after he has suffered. He will see the light of life, John 1, 5, and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, the salvation in the end of Hebrews 2, 9, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils of the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressions, for he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Turn to Philippians chapter 2 as Paul is telling us this doctrinally, what Hebrews is telling us in chapter 53. Philip the evangelist in Acts chapter 8, as he leaves the stoning of Stephen, he decides, I'm going to go tell people that are Gentiles. And as he's telling people that are Gentiles, God says, now I want you to go to an Ethiopian. He's he's a a eunuch and and he's the the servant and the, the primary understudy of Candace the queen and just go there and you'll know what to do. So the Holy Spirit picks him up, sets him down next to this chariot that has stopped on the side of the road, coming from Jerusalem. He purchased a scroll, and he opens it up to Isaiah 53, and he's reading it, and he's broken by it. And Philip says to him, do you know what you're reading? He says, no. He says, how can I understand this unless somebody explains it to me? He says, first thing I want to know is, who is this? 
that did this? Is this Isaiah? Or is this someone else? And he explains to him that it's the Messiah and that he loves Ethiopian eunuchs and that he died for your sins and he offers you his kingdom if you will follow him. And he jumps at the chance. He's in the chariot with Philip. Philip is probably wondering at that point, do I need to do anything else, Lord? And then suddenly the eunuch says, stop the chariot. There's water right there. Baptize me. Because you told me that he told you to baptize everyone in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want to be baptized. I want the world to know that I follow him. Paul is writing about him in Hebrews 2. He's writing about him in Philippians chapter 2 as well. As we read this humbling picture, Christ himself, Hebrews 2.9, was made lower than the angels. No one forced him to. He chose it. Verse 5, first of all, we could take this home with us and throughout our week. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, which was the most despicable way for a human being to die. Verse 9, Therefore, here's the building. God has exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, even yours, Father? Yes. The name of Jesus is the name above all names as far as names go. Verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, Isaiah 45, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, even or in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, sovereign, master, ruler of the universe, to the glory of God the Father. John chapter 12, Father, glorify yourself. I have glorified it, son, and I will glorify it again. What was that noise? That's for your benefit, not mine. I already know what he's done. I already know what I'm going to do. And he has glorified his father by lowering himself to a servant, going um, to the lower earthly regions, Ephesians 4, tasting death, hell, and separation for every human being. And for those who make him Lord, they will never taste it. They will never taste it. So the second death is only for those who believe they see but are actually blind. Let's turn to Hebrews. I just want to lead us into next week reading these two verses and then we will close. In Hebrews chapter 2, we leave off in verse 9 today. Verse 10. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation, Jesus Christ, perfect through what he suffered both the one who makes people holy and those who are made holy are in the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Deserve it? Never. Earn it? Can't. Um, ours? Yes. That's been his plan from the beginning. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Know our hearts as it is difficult to communicate what we think of your son and what he has done. That he would love me so much to taste death for me, whether I would follow him or not. And somehow, if I follow him, it pleases him 
to call me his brother. What an awesome Savior we have. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen.